Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to see all of you. And it is always a great day and a special day uh, to see parents, uh, Angela and Corey. Um, Corey's back there serving. Angela, where are you at? There, there you, you guys are together. Um, it's always awesome to get to watch parents stand here before uh, the church, before um, this faith family and declare their commitment um, before God and, and everyone in here to do all that you can do to raise uh, Annalise to uh, love Jesus. And we know that no one can make that happen. Um, but what we can do is we can lay all the kindling that we can around uh, our children and beg the Lord to ignite it. And so that's uh, what we do. This morning I want to start with a question as we get, you know, continue our series through Luke um, chapter 9. And, and it's the question I want you to ponder. And we're going to try to explain it today. What, what is the normal, just typical Christian life? What, it, what does the normal, just a normal, typical Christian life look like? What's the norm? I remember when I was in college, um, in college was kind of a, the not first couple of years, uh, those were n- uh, not good years um, as it relates to the things of Christ. But the last couple of years were um, an accelerated time of growth in my life and, and in my faith, an accelerated time of big church word sanctification that's been that's growing in the Lord so it was an accelerated time and uh, Sarah and I got married right out of college and so the first couple years of college as well it's just a very accelerated time of of growth in the Lord in my life and I remember talking with someone and I was you know telling them of all that Jesus had been doing in my life and uh, the the changes that he was making and the uh, how he was um, uh, transforming me more and more you know into his image and, and desiring to, to walk in his ways. And, and they looked at me and they said, Joe, you're starting to sound like some sort of Jesus freak. And I, and I looked at him and I said, well, if, 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 if the Bible's true, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, is it possible to love Jesus too much? Is it possible to be devoted to Jesus too much? Is it possible to want to live righteously and live purely and live holy before him too much? If he is who he says he is, is it even possible to want to do those things too much? And so this person in asking this question was expressing because they were a believer. I have no doubts they're a believer. But they were expressing to me what what many of us buy into as the norm, as the normal Christian life. Get, take a little bit of Jesus, but but just enough to, to keep you from going to hell, but not so much that it changes anything about your life. David Platt, who's the president of the International Mission Board, uh, wrote a blog several years ago. And in this blog, uh, he described this common American false view of the norm, the normal Christian life. And he said it like this, we American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we're more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have. 
A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Folks, that is not the norm of Christianity. The biblical norm, the normal life of a Christian is a life of self-denial. It is a life of taking up your, of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. It's a life of, and John referenced the notes, of number one, it's a life of self-denial. It's a life of number two, Jesus-dependent abandon. That is, abandoning the safe life. It's a life of true profit. And it's a life of shamelessness. And so that, I mean, that's the norm. We've gotten it all wrong a lot of times in our thinking that, that that's the way a super Christian lives. That's what, no, no, no. That's the norm. That's what Jesus says. I'm not making this what Jesus says. So let's, let me show you what Jesus says. All right? The normalcy of this is what he kind of um, confronts us with, with this morning. So if you have your Bibles, grab them and um, go to Luke chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one around you. We'll be on page 563. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home. It's our gift to you. We want you to, want you to have that. But do grab it and open up. You will be far better served by looking at the words that the Holy Spirit inspired and that prayerfully the Holy Spirit will use today to open our eyes and illumine our hearts as we read it again. Luke chapter 9. Uh, as you turn there, I want to kind of... Context is king when it comes to Scripture. So we need to understand where we're at in the flow of Luke chapter 9. Um, Last week, as we kind of like the passage that comes right before this that we talked about last week, it's kind of the highlight of the book of Luke thus far. It's what Luke has been building to this whole time as he's been laying out who Jesus is. And he's built to this point where Peter um, speaks on behalf of the disciples. Jesus asks him, Who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, You're the Messiah. You're the Christ of God. You're the long awaited promised one, and you're here. And so like we talked about last week, the disciples, they're, they're euphoric. They recognize Christ has come. The Messiah is here. And, and so they're thinking like it's all, all, everything's about to go down. All the messianic promises of the Old Testament, they think are about to literally go down right at that moment. And so they are, they are pumped. They are excited. And then Jesus is, looks them in the eye and he's like, but first I'm going to die. And their, their balloon is popped. And then he looks them in the eye and says, and you know what? If you want to follow me, there's a cross for you as well. The only way to follow Jesus is to follow him to the very death every single day. That's what Jesus says. So let's, let's look at it. Chapter 9, verse 23. Actually, let's go back to verse 18 just to kind of get the flow. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. This is, we did this last week. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
question we all have to answer. Heaven or hell is in the balance. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we'll deal with that next week in particular because the very next passage is the transfiguration. A place where the visible kingdom of God comes. We see the kingdom of God at the resurrection as well, as at the ascension, at Pentecost, but very in particular the transfiguration. So we'll deal with verse 27 in particular next week. But going back to verse 23 again. And He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so again, Jesus is just telling us what the norm is. Nothing special here. It's not super. This is just run of the mill Christianity. This is what the normal Christian life looks like. And so the first thing that he uh, says about it in particular is that it is a life of self-denial. It's a life of self-denial. And this flies in the face of 21st century um, just entitled mentality. Just this entitlement that, that we look, a lot of times we look back, the next generation entitled, no, no, no. We're in, where do they get it from? We're entitled. We feel like we're owed something. And so this, this idea that I would deny myself, no, 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 I gratify myself. I, I give in, if I want this, I do it. If I've got the means to do it and I want to do it, then I do it. That, that, but, but Jesus said, if you want to follow me, no, you don't. If you, you don't live that way if you want to follow me. If you want to follow me, you're going to make war on your pretty much nonstop selfishness and selfish inclinations. You're going to put them to death. You're going to put them to death whether it's a reactionary deal. Well, I only did X because someone did Y. If they hadn't done Y, then I would not have done X. It doesn't matter. You put it to death. It doesn't matter. You, you put that to death. You own your part. You put that to death. You deny yourself what you want to do in response. A faithful brother or sister is not a doormat. Okay? They're not a doormat. But they do absorb a lot of shots. They turn the other cheek and they take it. And they don't go bitter. Alright? You die to your rights to respond in a certain way because when you came to Jesus, you surrendered your rights. You don't have any anymore. He's Lord. He's boss. He's calling the shots. And so Jesus is calling us Every single one of us who calls ourselves a Christian to a life of self-denial as just the norm. 
It's putting to death the idol of I. It's going to say no to yourself and say yes to Jesus. And so to hammer this home, Jesus describes it in three different ways with three different verbs and three different word pictures. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And we'll start with deny. And the Greek word for uh, deny, uh, our, our Nehemiah, is a very, very strong word. It's a word that, uh, of negation that means literally to forget yourself. For, to forget yourself entirely. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. We're to live for Him. Forgetting ourselves, we're to live for Him. We're to live like He did. We, we deny ourselves like He did. In becoming man, He denied Himself the glory of heaven. In fulfilling the law and li living sinlessly, He denied Himself the, the um, momentary gratification of giving in to sin. In dying on the cross, He denied Himself freedom and protection from pain. And not just physical pain, but the almighty wrath of God against sin. And now Jesus calls us to deny ourselves so that we might live for Christ. So we might live for Him. And so, what are you accepting for yourself that Jesus wants you to deny? What, what are you accepting in your own life that Jesus wants you to deny? What are you holding on to that He's calling you to give up or give away? How, how are you denying yourself? If we're called to deny, how are you denying yourself so that you might live for Jesus? Closely related to this idea of denying ourselves is the idea of taking up our cross daily. Now, cross. This is not rocket science. What is the cross for? Punishment. More than that, execution. It's for killing. That's why the cross exists. It exists to kill people. And so Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow me, you must die to yourself. How often? Daily. No, I did it one time, I'm good. No, no, no. Daily. And, and, and when Jesus speaks of a cross, think about this for a minute. It, he hasn't, like the disciples have no idea that he's going to the cross. He's told them he's going to die, but he has not mentioned the cross yet. So it's not some familiar thing that's hanging on people's walls. It's not something they're familiar with. It's something that they have no, they just hear that and they're like, whoa, that's, that's heavy. You're talking about an execute. You're talking about an electric chair. You're talking about a, a, a syringe, you know, a lethal um, dose. You're talking about a firing squad. You're talking about a guillotine. You're talking about these things of execution. Not something that's friendly and cuddly and, 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 and that they know about and they, they know what's on the other end. So when he calls them to take up their cross and die. I mean, for them, Leon Morris puts it like this. When a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one way journey. He would not be back. Taking up the cross meant the utmost in self-denial. It meant the very death 
of self. And so what Jesus calls us to, the norm, not super Christians, the norm Christian life is a life of denying ourselves, dying daily to our inclinations, to our wants, to our desires, to our cravings, even sometimes dying to our goals, our ambitions, our dreams. Your life is now hidden with Christ if you are a believer. If you're not a believer, no. But if you are a believer, your life is now hidden with Christ. He's the boss. He calls the shots. And even if you're not a believer, ultimately, yeah, He calls the shots. And so we are to live like this daily. Like before the reward always, always comes death. Like before, before fruit, all right, a seed must die before there's fruit. Before fruit comes death. And so what that means in your life, like what, what in your life needs to die so that fruit might be born? What in me needs to die so that I might bear more fruit? It might be like it might be a sin. Colossians three talks about uh, putting those to death, <clears throat> or it might be something that's not bad, but it's just an idol. It's something that has supplanted Christ as first in my life, not on a list of priorities I would write down on a sheet of paper as if my priority is just functionally I live that way. And so ask yourself, what must die in my life that I might bear more fruit? And let's pull that up to the corporate level. Let's pull that up to the level of the church for a minute. What must die in our church so that we as a body might bear more fruit? Attitude, certainly. Racism. Self-righteousness, which takes a gazillion forms. Everybody goes, everybody's self-righteous in some way. Everybody says, thank God I'm not like that sinner in some way. Everybody does. Pride, selfishness, and me-ism versus we-ism. We need to be, it's a we-ism in here. Maybe it's good things like programs or ministries, but we could do m more things in a better way if we killed some things. And I don't want you to miss what Jesus is talking about when He says cross here. What, like, what is our cross? What is this cross that we are to take up? When Jesus talks about a cross here, He's not just talking about difficult people or financial hardships, work situations, um, diseases that you may have, disabilities, as hard as those may be. And I know, I get it. He's not talking about those as hard as they may be. What he's talking about are those things specifically uh, that, that we endure suffering that comes upon us, that we endure for his sake, like on purpose. It's because we live for him that we suffer these things. That's a cross. That's what he's talking about. The hardships that we face do the very fact that we are trying to follow Christ. Before I went into seminary, I just used my degree from Georgia Tech and I had a, I had a job 
outside of Atlanta, and we had some clients in town, some big-time clients in town, and uh, I'd only been there for about a year and a half, so I was still kind of low man on the totem pole, and uh, one of the things I had to do while they were in town is they rented um, vans for a couple of us, and we had to chauffeur these guys around town. And so one night it was late um, when we got done with everything, and uh, I mean, you know how business is sometimes. There's, uh, you know, these guys were happy, I guess, uh, from happy hour. And, uh, and so, anyhow, this is in Atlanta. They wanted me to take them to the Cheetah. The Cheetah is a strip club, um, and I wouldn't do it. I was like, I'm not, I'm not taking you there. They're like, no, no, you're, you're here to take, to, to drive us around. I'm like, yes, I am to take you from here to there, but I'm not taking you downtown. And if you want to, to, to call somebody, if you want to get a cab, you can do that, but I'm not going to drive the van. I'm not taking you down there. All right. So I didn't. They were angry and things didn't go super well with me at work on Monday. But that's okay. I'm living for a different prophet, not that prophet. Okay? We, we deny ourselves. We follow Christ and we take the shots. Whatever it looks like. Kent Hughes puts it like this. Our crosses come from and are proportionate to our dedication to Christ. Difficulties do not indicate cross-bearing. Though difficulties for Christ's sake do. And so do you have any difficulties because you're living for Christ? We should. We should. Because the word follow here, where it says follow me, that word literally means imitate. All right, We're to imitate Christ. Seeking to live righteously as He did. Seeking to live lovingly as He did. Seeking to live sacrificially as He did. As one guy put it, he bore the cross for us, and now we, we bear a cross for him. And so what are you doing without? What are you denying yourself from so that you might do more for Christ? Are you doing without a portion of your money? Are you doing without or maybe curbing some of your hobbies so that you have more times for the things of, of God and more times to invest in someone else's life or be invested into by someone else. A life of self-denial is a huge part of the normal Christian life. I mean, this is where monasticism came from. And I'm not saying we need to become monks. Monks, they went way too far this way in denying themselves. But normally what we do as American evangelicals, we go way too far this way in not denying ourselves. We are called to a life of self-denial. We're also called, secondly, to a life of Jesus-dependent abandon. All right? In other words, it's abandoning of the safe life. Abandoning that. All right? So number two, a life of Jesus-dependent abandon. Look at verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, notice right here, Jesus doesn't say whoever is willing to lose his life. He says whoever loses it. And he's talking physically, absolutely. But he's also talking spiritually. 
Like physically, all the apostles, save John who died exiled on the island of Patmos, all the disciples, and also besides the betrayer Judas, they all died martyrs. Horrible deaths. I've, gone, I've run through the litany of those deaths in here multiple times. And so the point that Jesus is making, it's physical and it's spiritual, is that to follow Him, we've got to abandon a life of safety-seeking. We've got to abandon a life of looking for ease and looking for comfort. Following Jesus involves risk. Period. We're to risk our security for Jesus. We're to risk our safety for Jesus. We're to risk our lives for Jesus. Physically and spiritually. And so sometimes we hear teens, we hear 20-somethings talk about how they, you know, man, they just, they, they have this bad idea that they're invincible. And it is a bad idea. In the one sense that, I mean, cancer comes for everybody. There's no respect for persons. Car accidents happen. Accidents at work happen. Things happen. We're not invincible. But in another sense of the word, until Jesus kills you and takes you home, you are invincible. Psalm 139, every day has been written down. Nothing happens by accident. That doesn't mean I'm going to go, you know, jump off the building or whatever. And that doesn't mean like we tempt fate in these sorts of things, but, but, but it should fill us with a courageousness that Jesus is in control. He holds my life in His hand. Psalm 139 says, all the days have been planned out for me before one of them has been lived. And so I can live courageously and I can take risk for Christ, understanding He's in control. That's why when people go get nervous when we travel to Central Asia, I'm like, Jesus is in Central Asia just as much as He is anywhere else. Maybe more. Because He goes to the difficult places and He goes to the outcast and the broken. It's weird to risk. We're to risk. We're to take risks here in Nolensville. People may reject us. People may, we're to take risks... Up Nolensville Pike, there's a Kurdish population who needs Jesus. There's apartments that are filled. What mom? This, this, moms with toddlers, that's your mission field. If you want to help get connected, I can connect you with moms and you can have play dates with Kurdish refugees and you can learn um, and you, you can help teach English and you play at a park and that goes to a place where then you're playing at your house and you're going to their house and, and you're loving them and you're learning meals and you're cooking meals for one another. And it comes to a place when they say to you, why on earth do you treat me absolutely different than every other American's ever treated me? And you say, because Jesus treated me different. Because Jesus came to me when I had not a people and he made me his people. So how are you living? Like what kind of risks are you taking for Jesus? How are, how are you living with Jesus-dependent abandon? Um, my sister-in-law sent us a, um, probably about a year ago, a packet of DVDs. And they're cartoons um, for, for our kids. And I think there's 12 of them or so. And it's just stories of Christian martyrs and um, uh, Christian like kind of historical figures so there's stories in there about 
Perpetua, who was a first Christian martyr, perhaps, uh, Augustine, and then getting closer to today, um, Corey Tinboom in World War II, Jim Elliott in the 50s, uh, going back a little bit, Eric Little, all kinds of different stories about these folks. And in fact, there was a movie about Jim Elliott and, and uh, Nate and uh, Nate, Nate and Steve Saint a couple years ago called Into the Spear. Any of you guys see Into the Spear? If you haven't, you ought to rent it and check it out. It's pretty good. And talking about movies, there's another movie that's out right now. There's also a book by uh, Ned Ripkin. It's called The Insanity of God. You need to see that movie. Like, period. You need to see that movie, The Insanity of God. It's probably not on DVD. It's probably still at movie theaters. You need to see that movie. It'll open your eyes a little bit to the, the fact that risk is right. It is right for us to risk. Because we're all going to die. When I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. We're all going to die. And all people are going to go to heaven or they're going to go to hell. And so question number one, are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? And then question number two, who are you, if, you're, if you are a believer, if you have received Jesus, who are you taking with you? Again, you can't argue anyone into the kingdom of heaven. It cannot happen. The Holy Spirit has to blow. He has to regenerate a heart. New birth has to happen. But you can lay kindling around that and beg God to ignite it. Who are you laying kindling around? What risks are you taking for the gospel? I talked about Jim Elliott. He's got a famous quote. Some of you may know it. Here's what he said. Because he's a guy who was trying to reach an unreached people group in the Amazon who had never been around Europeans or, or, or white folk. And he was stabbed with a spear and lost his life. But before that, he wrote this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Try to save it, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Spiritually and physically. All right, and so, number one, the norm is a life of self-denial. Number two, the norm is a life of Jesus-dependent abandon. Number three, it's a life of true profit. It's a life of true profit. Look at verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I'm going to be really quick here, and I'm just going to tell you the story of Charlemagne. Okay, Charles the Great is around the year 800. And Charles the Great, Charlemagne, he did um, a lot of things that were pretty good. <clears throat> and he did a whole lot of things that were pretty horrible. But, but he's a guy who, along with Pope Leo III, around the year 800, uh, tried to resurrect the Roman Empire. And they began calling it the Holy Roman Empire. And they were still someone who had that title and carried that title along until Napoleon came around and, and shut that down. All right, And so in doing that, that was not one of the good things that he did. This was one of the bad things that he did. But I tell you that just to help you get the idea of this man's power, this man's wealth, this man's um, prestige. Like he's, he is 
the Holy Roman Empire. But about 200 years after he died, uh, Emperor Otho had the, the tomb, like they opened Charlemagne's tomb. And when they went into Charlemagne's tomb, there were treasures, like, like a pharaoh, treasures everywhere. But beyond that, beyond just those treasures, there's a huge lesson in those treasures. Because as they walked in, there was Charlemagne's skeleton, all right, still sitting. They had propped him up on a throne. It was still sitting on the throne. The crown on top of the skull, he's just a skeleton, is still sitting on his skull. And he's got a copy of the Gospels in his lap, and his bony skeleton finger is resting on one. And what verse is it pointing to? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You're dead. You can't take it with you. So all the trinkets and the toys and all these stuff that we spend so much time desiring and craving and just having to have, they're all going, your favorite stuff is going to be sold in a garage sale someday. Your favorite car is going to be in a junkyard. Your house will be torn down. Your sports stats will be forgotten. Don't waste your life. Your stuff's not going with you. The only stuff that's going to count for eternity is the stuff that you do for Christ. So seek True prophet. Seek to live a holy life. Seek to live a gospel-centered life. Seek to lead people to Jesus. Lay kindling. Disciple one another. You don't need a program. Just do that. Disciple one another. Up through community groups. Men seeing men. Women seeing women. And identifying. I'm going to pour into that person. I need to be poured into by this person. I'm going to ask them. I've done that. When I became the pastor in 2000 and. Nine, I had no clue what to do. I was six months out of seminary. I was in my 20s. I had no idea. And then I, so I, I called a guy who didn't know me out of the blue. And I was like, here's the situation. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, whoa. And I was like, I need help. <laughs> and he helped me. And not that. But he helped me. We all need help. We all need to be discipling and be being discipled. Seek these things. Seek true profit. All right? So it's a life of self-denial. It's a life of Jesus-dependent abandon. It's a life of true profit. And then fourthly, it's a life of shamelessness. A life of shamelessness. Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so we see the word ashamed here twice. Right? We see it twice. It says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
And so I really like the way John Piper put this. He, he, he asked, he said, what's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? Being proud of them. Admiring them. Not being embarrassed to be seen with them. It's, it's loving to be identified with them. And so Jesus is saying, if you're embarrassed by me and the price that I paid for you, and he's not talking about some momentary lapse in courage when you didn't share the gospel with someone and, and you should have. I mean, we should, but he's not. He's talking about a bigger picture of that. If you're not proud of me and you don't cherish me and what I did for you. I mean, Piper puts it harsh and I love it. He says, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me. Then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you. And you will perish with the people who consider me an embarrassment. Folks, the life of a normal Christian is a life of shamelessness as it regards the gospel, as it regards Christ. We don't hide it. We're not embarrassed by it. We don't hope people won't notice that, that we're Christians. And we, we live a life of intentionality. We live a life of love and sacrifice and seeking to give away the life and joy and freedom and forgiveness that we've found in Christ. We declare with Paul that we are not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. But not only, not only is this life of shamelessness something that we live as it relates to, to Christ and making Him known, but it's something we glory in because our shame has been taken away. Our guilt and our Sin and our shame is gone. And Jesus paid it all. So we don't have any left to pay because He paid it all. He lived a sinless, perfect life that we didn't. And then He died the death that we deserve, the one that we should die for our sin, bearing the wrath of God that is against me and against my sin. Jesus did it in my place. And then three days later, He rose Again, so that I can be forgiven, so that my sin can be taken away, so that my guilt can be taken away, and my shame over what I've done and what I will do someday is gone. It's gone. We live a life of shamelessness in that regard as well. Because that too is part of the normal Christian life. Glorying in the gospel and making war on ourselves. But to glory in it, we must count the cost. And so I'm going to close with a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German Lutheran pastor. Um, born in the early 1900s. He died in 1945. He died right before um, Germany was liberated in World War II. He actually fled Germany prior to uh, the Nazis kind of taking control of the church. But, and he came to America, but then he felt convicted that those who were still in Germany needed someone to pastor them, someone to lead them. And so he went back to Germany knowing full well, I'm probably going to die. And he did. He was arrested. And just days before liberation... Uh, they brought him out to the gallows and, and he prayed and he forgave his captors and they hung him 
uh, not by like dropping, you know, taking them up on scaffold and dropping something out from underneath him, but taking a meat hook and taking piano wire and wrapping it around his neck and starting to twist that meat hook until it grew tight and until it lifted him off the ground. That's how he died, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But he pastored while he was in the prisons. He also wrote a book that is a Christian classic. I did not put it in your resources. I do not know why. It needs to be, it's called The Cost of Discipleship. This is a must read. A must read. If I make a list of all the books that I think a Christian should read, this is on that list. The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Here's an excerpt. Excerpt and we'll be done. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ, suffering which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and, and, and work to follow Him. Or maybe a death like Luther who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. But it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at His call. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was, to call, was calling Him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and His call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ means both death and life. Folks, this is the normal Christian life. May we learn it and may we live it. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we so often trivialize You. We so often treat You as second or third or fourth or fifth fiddle in our lives. We so often, I so often, functionally prioritize everything over you. Forgive me. Forgive us. And thank you Thank you, Christ. Your, your forgiveness is not begrudging. It's not... Like it, 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 it's free. And it's overflowing. And there is no shame. You bid us come and die. Help us to die daily. And help us to even die to our propensity to try to hang on to our shame and reshackle ourselves to it. 
you have burst the bonds. They do not hold us anymore. We are free indeed. Because you are great and gracious and merciful and good. And you lived and died and rose again for all who would repent and believe. Bless your great name.